Welcome to the Open Book Unbound podcast. Hi, Marjorie. Hey, Claire. How are you today? It's festival month. (laughs) It's that one where you have to take a deep breath and plunge in. There's no wading in slowly to get used to the temperature, is there? Busy old month for us, though, isn't it? We've got so much going on with Open Book, never mind the sneaky little events we want to try and get to ourselves. You and I are both chairing, and then we've got three workshops that we're delivering ourselves. And we've also got six free open book shared reading sessions that anyone can pop along to, taking place in the book festival, on campus, as it were. And we'll also be taking lots of our groups, so we're hoping some of you who are listening in will be coming with us to visit the book festival on our open book day. But you can find out all the details of exactly what we're doing and when and the times in our August newsletter. One of the fun things this year was choosing the materials for those drop-in shared reading sessions, which any of you can drop into because they all look at a first book. As a writer, it's always hard to get your first book kind of out into the world and sold. And so we've decided to sort of support that line of events by choosing six of them. And in those sessions, we'll be looking at the first chapters of those books as a group, reading them together in a way that lets us um, go to those events after we've read the first chapter and chatted about them. So please join us for those. We hope to see you there. But today we've got a lovely short story by Helen Little called New Beginnings and a poem by Eddie Gibbons called Early Morning West Hartlepool, 1963. So thanks to Eddie for for letting us read that poem. Will we just crack into the story and see what we make of it? Okay, I'll make a start on New Beginnings by Helen Little. It's perfect, I tell the estate agent. I'll put an offer in right away. By the time I get home, I've decided on a colour scheme, yellow and cobalt blue, and I've made a shopping list. Modular seating, art prints, a coffee machine for the stainless steel kitchen. The loft I've just viewed is in a converted factory, the epitome of cool. My floral sofa and pine wardrobe aren't going to cut it. I put my key in the lock, chuck my shoes off and phone Sarah. She doesn't sound convinced. Will the neighbours be your sort of people? Why wouldn't they be? They might be a bit, you know, sophisticated. That's what they'll be. And you think I won't fit in because? There's an edge to my voice and it's deliberate. They'll be young, that's what I meant. You don't want all-night parties in your 40s. I can hear her teenage son in the background. Ma, what's for tea? Jealousy is a terrible thing, I tell her. Terry's giving me plenty in settlement. It's guilt money. Why shouldn't I spend it on something I'll enjoy? The microwave pings. Listen, love, I'll have to go. Come with me tomorrow for a second viewing. I peel the film of the frozen lasagna. The cheese smells like vomit. I toss it in the pedal bin and open a bottle of Merlot. Evenings were like this long before he left. He said he had to entertain clients, but it turned out he was entertaining his secretary. He moved in with her six months ago. Now it's just me, the cat, and a semi-detached house full of crap furniture. I pad back to the living room in my bare feet and put the glass on a coaster and sink into the sofa. The iPad fits in my hand too easily. 
When I'm not at work, I've been staring at a screen instead of living. Lately, I've been asking what the point of me is. No kids, I couldn't. If there's nothing much at home and there's nothing much at work, why should I bother going on? I joined the civil service straight out of uni. It was one of those piss-stained concrete unis, nobody's first choice. And I did English. Not the most employable degree in the world. I started off in an entry-level clerical job. Typing. Typing. Filing. Typing. Cheese sandwiches for lunch and typing until home time. You would think I'd be high up by now. You'd be wrong. Like I said, I've been wondering what the point is. I've got nothing to look forward to except my pension. This new place, it's the answer. Why shouldn't I party with the neighbours? We look out of those high, beautiful windows that flood our homes and ourselves with light. I'll serve them sticky cocktails and we'll talk about art exhibitions. I haven't a scooby about art, but I can learn. When I move there, I will live with energy and purpose. Yes, I'm going to be very different from how I am now. I'm looking at the state agent's photos again. I've done this so many times. I know they have Nespresso coffee pods in the kitchen and she has Chanel Coco Mademoiselle on her dressing table. And that building, I love every inch of it. Gothic windows, turrets, and what looks like a band of multicoloured carpet wound all the way around the outside. It's amazing. I tap the factory name into Google. I'll learn something about the history and recite it to Sarah when we go for a viewing tomorrow. Will we stop there? I'm not sure what to make of this woman. I swing between feeling sorry for her and being annoyed with her that she hasn't done more, kind of been more interested. Yeah, it sounds like though she's made the decision to be more interested now though. Maybe she's needed some change, some sort of fundamental change to what was happening in her life just to sort of jolt her out of things. And she sounds like she's got it. I mean, how many of us just kind of keep going, plodding on and just not looking up? I wonder if it's a kind of character thing or if it's a generational thing. I think lots of people of the generations coming up behind us wouldn't sit in a job that they were miserable in forever. I think maybe as well something about feeling it's impossible and that's only sort of happened for her when she's kind of had to put a bit of a magnifying glass on her life and what's going on in it because of circumstances outside her control. Yeah, and I guess we don't know enough about her to know how she landed there. You and I certainly never had that experience of, you know, working, well, we obviously worked very long hours and we both worked at other jobs. We still work long hours. But then when we would come home and we were busy, you know, really busy. You know, I guess in in those moments, I always thought, oh, there'd be such a freedom if you didn't. I mean, obviously, I wanted my children and my family, but if you didn't have family, I always look to people who didn't have young children and think, well, you've got time to make of it. But I wonder if you have that time, if, you know, if you use it in the ways that I would always imagine that I would have, or whether you would end up just watching telly or doing other things. I don't know. Everybody's so different, aren't they? Yeah, I do think it's a personality thing, because I think we all had more time in lockdown than we had before. And there were definitely people who were going off and training to run a marathon and baking and all the rest of it and others who really just hunkered down and didn't do very much at all. And I think that that would be the same in life. You know, the same people that do a lot now are probably not going to be the people that even if they did have time, would spend it on their iPad. And that's what makes me wonder about her. I'm going to be different now. It doesn't sound like she's had a whole lot standing in her way before then. 
in terms of partying with the neighbors. He did move out six months ago. Yeah, she's had six months to party. <laughs> exactly. And she's still having microwave lasagna. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would have, yeah, maybe she's not interested in cooking, but yeah, you know. Yeah, I guess. And we know, I mean, I always think, oh, it'd be lovely to cook for yourself. But the truth is, I think if you don't, um, if you cook for other people all the time, when you have the chance to just cook for yourself, my sense is you never do, because it's just, you just want, a, want an easy life. Yeah, she's not taken up cooking or taken up anything, it doesn't sound like. She's quite harsh on herself when she describes her job and her degree, and she doesn't in any way try to sugarcoat it or even explain to us how she ended up there. She doesn't say, you know, well, I took it as a temporary job till I worked out what I wanted to do and just kind of ended up staying there or she's very hard on herself. She strikes me as a person, no, I could be wrong, but she strikes me as a person who's kind of serially disappointed. So, you know, I didn't get into my first class degree and it was a crappy uni or, you know, she's not very kind about it. She doesn't talk about the experiences she had there. She went into an entry level job. She's still at that, you know, rather than being like, right, well, it's maybe not my first choice, but actually we all end up where we're, but you know, she's not making decisions with reference to anyone else. And there's a real freedom in that or energy in that somehow. And, and what's interesting for me is why now, you know, what in the last six months has brought her to a place where she's now ready to do that? Is it just time or has there been something behind the scenes we don't know about or is it pure chance? Did she just walk past the estate agent's window and see the place that she's buying in the window? And was that enough to tip her into action? Because she doesn't strike me as a sort of action driven person. No, but maybe maybe she's just got fed up. You know, I think sometimes people get to a point where they think, actually, I've had enough. And maybe that's what it's taken. Or maybe she was married to someone who told her she shouldn't bother, that she wasn't any better than the, the house that they lived in, or she she shouldn't she shouldn't look for new work, you know, that that's, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. You know, you, maybe she was with someone who didn't encourage her to take those risks or chances. So now that he's gone, she feels she can. She might as well have things that she enjoys and you know, everybody loves a clean slate, especially after a drama. So yeah, it's just the, the six months in, maybe that's how long it, it took her to get her settlement sorted out. You know, good honor. I think it's funny, you know, it, her friend's response to it tells us her idea tells us a lot about her, which is she's obviously not the kind of person that you could picture partying in their 40s. Whereas, you know, if I'm not in my 40s anymore, sadly, but only just. And I can't imagine that many people saying to me, oh, you wouldn't want to be having cocktails with the neighbors because I would. <laughs> so her response, um, Sarah's response makes me think she isn't that kind of person, but aspires to be. Should we read on and see if we yeah. get any more clues? And then I discover something terrible. During the construction of the factory, 29 women died. They were weaving carpets in a shed adjacent to the construction site, and a wall fell on them. One could only be identified by her stockings. There was money for gothic windows, turrets, and all kinds of fancy things, but none for protecting human life. The next morning, Sarah and I are walking around the building. It looks very different after what I read last night. I know I can't live here, and I've cancelled the viewing. The women's screams would haunt me. We come to a gate and a narrow path. Their names and ages are inscribed on grey slabs. We walk on the grass next to the path and I read their names out loud. There are four Elizabeths, four Margarets, three Agneses, Helen, 
Lilius, Jane, Janet, Dinah, Jean, Jeannie, Jemima, Sarah, Ellen, Minnie, Martha, Roseanne, Marianne, Mary, Grace, and two Annies. The youngest Annie was just 14. The oldest girl, Elizabeth Sinclair, was 25. One of them has my surname. A shock goes through me when I realize that in 1889, this could have been me. Back then, I wouldn't have lived long enough to get bored with life. I wouldn't have lived long enough to do much of anything. A man comes striding round the corner. He's dressed casually but expensively, and the wind disturbs his grey hair. Are you ladies here for the tour? Sarah looks bored now. We didn't know there was one. No, we didn't, I say, but I'd like to join if that's okay. His name is Robbie, and he tells me about the disaster. Sarah makes her excuses and leaves. Her teenager is sulking in the car, and he's probably wrecked it by now. This isn't Robbie's day job. He's an architect, but his hobby is social history. He loves it, loves the people who were too poor to be remembered. There's so much I want to ask him, and during the tour, I bombard him with questions. Afterwards, we go to the on-site microbrewery and have lunch at a picnic table. No, reader, I didn't marry him. It isn't that kind of story. Later, he introduces me to his wife, Marina, who is equally passionate about the city and its people. They think I should do a diploma in heritage management and look into a career change. As it turns out, I didn't need to spend my alimony metamorphosing into a new person. All I needed to do was step outside myself, listen to the voices that are all around us, always in the background. When I hear the screams, I count my blessings. And there's a note at the end of the story that says it's based on the Templeton Carpet Factory disaster of 1889. That took an unexpected turn for me. (laughs) It really did. I wouldn't have taken her as the kind of woman who would have let that put her off buying the flat. Or have been particularly interested in social history of the women. Just goes to show we make so many assumptions about the characters. Well, I think for me, it's probably my reading of it is that it's finding one with her own surname that's the chain, that the killer for her, that kind of that moment of it could be me. What am I doing? But also just the sheer number of names. I mean, I think Helen's included each and every one of them because it feels more meaningful and gives me a better sense than just the number 39 alone. And, you know, having four of one, four Margarets, three Agneses, also tells you something about the community of women that they came from and the way that people named their children back then. Or the idea that a young 14-year-old lost her life, that she was working, you know. Mm, Exactly. It's remarkable. And that the oldest was only 25. But I think there are those moments, and I think those, and more than anything, are the catalysts, you know, when something happens in your life that that kind of makes you think, actually, that could be me. And actually, what am I doing? Am I, it's almost like a check-in, like, am I doing the things I really want to be doing? You know, and at our age, it, it ends up being friends who are ill, I think, more than anything. And it does make you think, okay, well, 
if it's a contemporary, it's becoming less and less an unusual kind of freakish thing and a, a, almost a, a regular thing with friends being ill. And so there is this regular kind of, what can I do to help? How do I support that person? And then when you take that back into your own life, what is it I'm doing or what is it I'm not doing that I want to be doing? It's a regular wake-up call. And that feels like that's what's happened to her here. And I think as well, the wake-up call is not, well, I need to get cracked on and buy the flat and get moved in and start my new life. It's it's a complete dawning and realization for her of, actually, I really need to put a magnifying glass over what I'm doing here and work out because, you know, that idea that acquiring things and buying things is what will make her happy or what will change her life seems to really dissipate quite quickly for her when she speaks to Robbie and meets his wife. What I love about this story, apart from that shift it, and the kind of ambiguity in the first half, we were not really sure who she is or what she's doing or where she's come from. I love the fact that she can do it anyway, you know, with, despite all of that. But what I what I really love is these chance meetings. You know, this this year we've had um, lots of ideas about lots of themes about things like choice and barriers and stuff. But I think one of the things that so often we discount and we can't, because we can't control it is chance, you know, and this is the chance. You met Robbie but, and sometimes it's just those odd moments where you meet someone and it literally can change your whole life. Um, and not, and not a romance, not a whirlwind romance. It's not that kind of story, as she says, but just someone who sees an interest in yourself and reflects it back to you and makes it worthwhile, as it were, rather than just saying, oh, well, I know lots about that, but actually you're interested in that. I'm telling you, you're interested in that and you sound like you'd be good at it. And there's something about that that makes me think no one's ever said that to her. Yeah, I was just going to say that. It doesn't sound like that's an approach that she's used to. It feels like she really values the fact him and his wife have said, you know, think about heritage management. You'd be good at that. And meeting people who are passionate makes something makes me think she hasn't really met people who are passionate and also not necessarily just passionate about what they do at their work because it sounds like he does something else but you're allowed to have things you're interested in that don't relate to your work that you do all day and those are equally valid and in fact they can become as we were start talking about at the beginning of this podcast they can become the things that are your work if you want them to be and I think what I really like about the story is the fact that she's open to that change and that possibility in a way that maybe when I read the first half of the story, I had had her pegged as someone who's quite set in their ways, doesn't like change, reluctant to make change, you know, would almost rather put up with a job that she hated, motivate herself to go and find a way out and to make that change. But by the end of the story, it really feels like she's, you know, absorbed what what was the phrase living with uh, when I move, I will live with energy and purpose. It feels like she's found that energy and purpose without the need to move, which I guess is the whole the whole point of the story, really. Yeah. And I, and, and I was dubious about whether the, the move itself creates a lot of energy, but actually you then get tired and, you know, and then you're there and then what, you know, nobody is about their house unless you're one of those people who forever is shifting your house. But, you know, it's, that isn't a reason, reason to be. Whereas this new interest or this expressed interest seems more likely like to have struck a kind of interest, a kind of proper vein of who she is. I love that line, you know, all I needed to do was step outside myself and listen to the voices that are all around us. And it's a nice echo back to the voices of the girls. But in some ways, she's really hearing them. But also the voices of, you know, people that she's met casually. You know, the idea that wisdom can come from the most unlikely places. And the idea as well that there's so much enrichment and enjoyment and pleasure about 
you're turning yourself outwards and looking what's out there rather than being focused on the fact she doesn't like her floral sofa and if she got rid of that her life would be so much better and it did make me want to go and look up the Templeton carpet factory disaster because it's not something I'd heard of or know anything about other than what we've been given in this story so I'm setting myself some homework yeah and it's an interesting thing because she's obviously someone who feels like the history of a building lives in the building and that's again more depth than I would have given her because she doesn't strike me as someone who's made a huge shift in any kind or kind of particularly perceptive. But it sounds like, you know, when she's saying, oh, oh, I couldn't live there, that makes me think maybe she is more sensitive or perceptive than we would have thought. Or at least she's growing into that. She's becoming aware of that, which I really like. I'm not a big fan of Sarah, I should say. No. Sarah seems to be a bit of a downer, doesn't she? Not taking much pleasure from her friend's potential happiness or interest. My worry about Sarah is she's obviously been a friend of hers for a long time. And the one time she wants to make a shift, she's a downer and a doubter rather than being like, right, what you need, big shift, you know, come on. It's like, oh, no, you're not, you're not one to do that. So we think she should ditch Sarah as a friend. Hang out with Robbie and Marina. <laughs> yeah, that's our vote cast, folks. <laughs> Let us know if you'd like to defend Sarah. But we're all going to be looking for Sarahs in our lives this week. So moving on to the poem, Early Morning, West Hartlepool, 1963. And it's by Eddie Gibbons, who is a great friend and supporter of Open Books. So thank you very much, Eddie, for all you do for us, but particularly today for letting us have your poem. A pipe fitter's mate at the gates of dawn is wrenched from sleep by a sulphurous smell. At 6am, he'll be entering hell with the whole damnation following on. He's breathed the acids that chimneys discharge, winced as the chemicals scoured every cell of his threadbare lungs, coughed up, cursed Brunel, Whitworth, and walked for the shackles they forged. He's walked this factory road for years, the depth of his souls erode with each step, the worth of this graft from indenture to death shows paltry returns for his time on earth. Windpipe stripping smoke rasps his every breath. The brass in the south, he's walking north. Uh, you know I'm going to say this makes me think of Philip Levine. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? Work. We it's hope, poem. Eddie, that you love Philip Levine as much as we do. There's a lot in, it's, it's a relatively short poem, but Eddie's managed to, to put a lot of ideas and imagery into there. It's a sonnet, and it's got a nice shift at the end of it too. But you get, there's, a, there's incredible sound in that poem, apart from anything else, before you even get into the its meaning or themes. You know, you've got like sulfurous smell and chemicals scoured every cell and lots of and that sort of yeah cursing and coughing and lots of words with double meanings you know shackles and souls and returns and it feels that every word has been very carefully chosen but it, trying to let us into the life of this man who's obviously worked a factory job entering what he thinks of as hell with the whole damnation following on so everyone coming in behind him and it sounds like the smells and the heat and the long hours and the, the smoke and all the rest of it is very much like the description that is often given of hell. So, And the whole damnation following on, I think, 
for me, gives me a sense that that's the option for people living there. You know, the factory is the the place where people can get a job. And it and it's not positive. It's just an indenture to death. You know, you're just buying yourself a little more time. And anyway, and in that sense, it links beautifully with the story because it you know before that shift for the person in the story, it does also in some ways feel like an indenture. You know, there's just you have to give out. What's the point? You just keep working, 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 and there's nothing. There's no joy in it. You're just passing the days. Yeah, that's a great description because here it feels like quite a hard graft, a sore graft, you know, positively sore. Whereas, you know, for the woman in our story, it feels like boredom, which is different, really. I really like the sort of unusual compound words and descriptions that are in here. The the wind stripping smoke and the threadbare lungs are kind of quite unusual images but they really tell you exactly what what we're getting at yeah and I mean and they're great descriptions aren't they of that idea of working in conditions that would have left people with life shortening injuries right I mean I don't know that much about this time period in the UK but I do know about factory work in the states and you know apart from just the physicality of doing the same thing over and over again all day long for years yeah the exposure in this time to chemicals or even just asbestos yeah that's exactly what i was thinking of that whole generation of people that worked in places where the asbestos damaged them and killed them and and the fact that the redress for that and the recognition of that is very very recent you know and i think for some people still going on that that fight to have compensation and I mean I guess you can, you can see that but also you know my legal brain clicks in and thinks how are people to know they probably did actually and the, the question is when did they know you know and then at what point do you continue to expose people to it I don't know yeah it's kind of like the um tobacco companies and smoking isn't it you know like they knew long before it was public knowledge that tobacco damaged people's lungs but there was a pe- long periods of time where that knowledge was denied and that people were made to suffer further because they had to go to court and they had to fight for their compensation and they had to establish that they were ill rather than the people responsible saying okay it was a terrible mistake but now we'll look after you yeah and i guess tobacco is different because it's a choice you make to go to the shops and buy it in this case I mean, one could argue it's a choice that you make to go to work, but it, it doesn't sound like it in this poem. And, and for many communities, I'm guessing it wasn't a choice to not work, you know, to support your families or to support yourself. And, you know, in, in lots of places, there weren't any other options or there were probably no other options. But, you know, if you think of miners, you know, there wasn't much of an option except going down the mine to have food on the table. So what choice? Whereas tobacco, I think, is kind of harder because it's a bit like drinking alcohol. You know, you, you go to the store and you purchase it. Yeah, I think so. But I, I think what I was trying to get at was that once you can make the decision to keep buying it in full knowledge that it's dangerous, that it's different. But I, I think my, what I was trying to get at was the fact that for a long time, people were actually sold, you know, doctors prescribed smoking to calm your nerves. You know, and it was perceived as something you did as part of your health for for health. It was a healthy thing to do. But I think what is interesting for me as well is that if I hadn't read the date in the title, that this could have 
been a description of, apart from Brunel, Whitworth and Watt necessarily dating it. But, you know, it could have been a much older description. And then having 1963 in the title is quite a shocking thing because, I mean, that is recent history. It is. And, you know, you, as you say, I'd expect it to be much closer to the beginning of the century when you're breathing in something that actually hurts to breathe in. But what I love about this poem is the last line, that he's walking north. You know, he's had enough. His soul is eroded enough. If, you know, the depth of his soul erode with each step. And as you say, that's got double meaning. He's probably wearing down his shoes, but also, you know, he's actually had enough. You know, he's wanting a bit of his own kind of energy or will. And the value of what he's doing is eroded as well. Yeah. Well, and also it shows paltry returns for his time on earth. You know, it, it, again, it harkens back to that story, like, we'll just keep going for another day. We'll just keep going for another day. But at what point do you think, no, that's enough? And sometimes it requires that real, well, in her case, a real catalyst to bolt her out of that. But it sounds like he hasn't had that. He's just reached a point and is walking north, which I like. Even though he knows that the brass or the money or the, you know, the wealth is in the south, he's chosen to walk away from it. Easier said than done, I think. And... I'm guessing at that point he doesn't have a family to feed a nest of baby chicks at home with their mouths open wide. But Or we might think differently of him. But yeah, I think the way that it's written, we're all, we're all wanting him to go. We're all wanting him to make that shift. So that maybe there's something in that psyche about making a shift, about um, you know, doing things that feel that somehow sit better with who we are. And taking back a bit of control from a scenario where it doesn't feel that there's much control in day-to-day life, that so much is prescribed for him, what hours he has to be there, what job he has to do when he can leave. Yeah, and the form of that taking back differs between here and the story. And it turns out she didn't need the new flat. She just needed to open doors or listen, as she says, to the people around her. But yeah, taking things back can, can mean lots of different things, can't it? the idea of paltry returns sat with me as well as being another another phrase that has lot can mean lots of things what, what return is he looking for for his time on earth we thought we were talking about work this month we did we've talked about all sorts of things but can i commend reading this one aloud to you um when you uh find it on the website or reading it aloud to yourself when you find it on the website um or in our newsletter because it, it has a lovely meter when you're reading it and the words sit really nicely in your mouth so don't be afraid to read it to yourself even if you're sitting in a room on your own because it's it's a good one that sort of fills your mouth and is very satisfying to read aloud so thank you eddie for letting us have and read this poem with you today i think that's all from us this yeah. month and I hope you all have a wonderful August and that you manage to get to some of the events, whether that's in person or live streamed, um, that are happening over the next month. And we will be back with you in September. 